We're here this morning with Vincent Chip Lococo, a New Orleans author. Welcome. Thanks, John. I love being here with you this morning. Chip, I know you're an author, but what is your writing niche? Officially, I'm a historical fiction writer. My niche would be Italian historical fiction, uh, which in reality means that I write novels that take place in Italy, and specifically Sicily. The podcast today will focus on your latest novel, Saving the Music. However, Saving the Music is part of a series, right, Chip? That is correct. It's part of the Bella Fortuna series. The Bella Fortuna series begins with a song for Bella Fortuna, an inspirational Italian historical fiction novel set in the fictional village of Bella Fortuna, Sicily. What was your main source of inspiration behind a song for Bella Fortuna? Pretty simple, John, because I had written my first novel, which is not part of the series, but it's called Tempesta's Dream, about a young opera singer growing up in Milan, Italy. That book was dedicated to my son, my firstborn child. After that, my daughter soon came along, and I really wanted to dedicate a book to her, thinking I could never write a second novel. And the inspiration for that for Bell, a song for Bella Fortuna came to me pretty much overnight, um, and it was this this idea of this village and their ruling family over the village, and what would they do to try to, to free themselves from the shackles of oppression, as they say. So the song for Bella Fortuna was a novel about freedom. It certainly was, John. Your second novel in the Bella Fortuna series is Saving the Music. It sets the villagers of Bella Fortuna in the midst of the Second World War in a bid to save the protagonists and protect them from imminent danger. How did this story come to be told? Well, I would say I wrote a song for Bella Fortuna, and pretty much after it came out, I received a review from a reader who loved the novel and mentioned to me that they would love to know what happened to the characters in the book. Chip, who was the reviewer? I mean, was it a man, a woman? Was she from here? Where was she from? You know, I'm, I'm, I don't know where she was from because it, it, it was an anonymous email from uh, an anonymous Amazon review. Um, and in that review, she mentioned about what happened to the characters. I thank her profusely, whoever she is, because she was the inspiration for saving the music. And what, who are you talking about? Which characters, Chip? I think, you know, she wasn't specific, but of course, the two main characters in the series is that are in Antonio Sanguinetti and his son Giuseppe Sanguinetti, who are wine merchants in the village and who really are the leaders of this village. And we kind of follow their progression as the, um, century, as the, as the years go by. As they work to free themselves from the ruling family. Artocracy. Exactly, John. <laughs> exactly. Great way to put it. Okay. So, Chip, basically, you got your hands on everything you could to write this novel from anywhere you could find it. Is that right? I would say based on, uh, compared to my first novel, the amount of research I did for the second novel was um, a lot. <laughs> so I, I, I read a lot of newspaper articles, a lot of non nonfiction historical books. I spoke to a number of people who actually were there at the scene uh, during World War II. We're going to come back to that, Chip. But uh, first, I want to ask you, what inspired you 
to write this novel, Saving the Music. It's, it's kind of funny because right after I received the re- review from, let's call her the anonymous woman, I ended up in Washington, D.C. for our annual S- New Orleans Saints football trip. Um, one day before the game, we decided to go see the Holocaust Museum with some friends. And it, it's a, if you've never been, it's an extremely moving museum. It's very well done. There's one room in particular um, where it's just a room of nothing but shoes of all the Jewish victims. Um, it, was, it was unbelievable how, how effective that room was. <laughs> so you, Chip, were personally affected by your experience at the Holocaust Museum in the room of the shoes. In the room with the shoes, there was also, a, a, just a, a caveat, you also were able to walk onto a cattle car. And it really is disturbing, yet at the same time, extremely moving. But going back to the room with the shoes, as you leave the room with the shoes, there was a little plaque on the wall, and that plaque thanked the Italian people for all that they did in saving the Jewish people. Over 80% of the Italian Jews survived the war. Of course, I came back home thinking in terms of the anonymous woman who told me what would happen to these characters, looked at it from the standpoint of, okay, if I move the story ahead to World War II, my characters would still be in their 60s, some of them would be in their 30s, so I thought it would be a perfect opportunity to continue the story in the World War II era. So, Chip, who were the people that you talked to to gather information for your story, Saving the Music? I'd say there were three people who, who were the most um, influential. influential. Yes, yes, sir. Ronald Ralchuk, who was the author of The Hitler, The War, and The Pope. Um, he's a law professor over at Ole Miss. Um, was so instrumental in, in just discussing with him I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later on, but but really delving into what did Pope Pius XII do or not do or allegedly not do in relationship to saving Jewish people. The other person was was Father Peter Gumpel, a Jesuit living in Rome, who who is the postulator of the cause of the beatification for Pius XII. I sent to him an early draft of the novel, um, he was about 92 years old at the time, and I got back from him, which I still have in my possession today, six handwritten pages of notes stating exactly the Pope wouldn't say it like this, or the Pope would not have had his meetings at this part of the Vatican, it would have been at this part. The other person I spoke to was Harold Titman, was the embassy um, Vatican official for the United States, living at the Vatican and I spoke to his son, because Mr. Tippmann is now deceased, of course, but I spoke to his son, who was living at the Vatican at the time, who was really instrumental in just kind of giving a flavor for what life was like living at the Vatican at that time. So, Chip, you actually had eyewitnesses to the events that you described in your fictional account in Saving the Music. I absolutely did. And I think as, as a writer, as you, you know, as you go along and you get reviews from your other novels, you start to realize your research has to be pretty much spot on because you're going to have very many people reading your novel who are going to pick you apart if you, if it's not correct. You know, so for example, just to give you one example, there's a, there's a train, a convoy in the, of, of Holocaust train in the, um, in the novel. And I had guards, Nazi guards sitting on top of the train cars. Well, I just needed to make sure, is that correct, how many guards do they usually have? And I remember there was a historian over at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., who I reached out to, 
who gave me about a nice four four law four paragraph answer as to just a very simple question as to how many cars would there be and how many guards would there be on the train. So, what did you find out about the location of the guards? In the on the train, you know it's funny. He got very detailed, right? So um, there would be about twenty cars that have a guard on top of each train. About every other every other car or every other two cars would have a have a, a guard, and it depended also upon how long a trip was going to be. Was if it was going to be at night or during the day? Um, so a lot of it just depended upon um, you know where it was going to be set. In my novel, but he was he was very instrumental. Chip, I read your book, and. One of the many scenes and scenarios that stood out to me was involving the resistance fighters, the Jewish resistance fighters, attacking the train and freeing the hostages. What, how did you incorporate that in your book? In the course of my research, I came across a story which I was unaware of, and it was um, it's known as the attack on the 20th convoy. Um, it happened on April 19th of 1943, when members of the Belgian resistance stopped the Holocaust train and freed a number of Jewish people who were being transported to Auschwitz. Um, I think they, I think 118 Jews escaped from the train. I used that story as the basis for how do my musicians who are being transported from Vienna to the Mauthausen concentration camp, how were they freed? And of course, there's going to be an attack on the train, which frees the Jews. Yeah. So that was a historical reality. Absolutely. And so when your book becomes a movie, that's going to be a very uh, action packed scene, the attack on the train. It will be, and um, it's funny you mentioned about my my book becoming a movie because um, it has been picked up by a producer out in L.A. who is actively trying to turn the book into a potential series, um, which you know I I would love to see one day because I think I would lo- I'd love to see it on the, on the screen to see exactly what what a good screenwriter could do and director could do with the with the storyline. So you mentioned Pope Pius XII, which is a very controversial issue in terms of the Pope's role during World War II. Did he do enough? Did he not do enough? What's your current view of the Pope? I guess, you know, first I'll, uh, I guess I'll talk about um, what I, kind of what my feelings coming into my research. I knew a little bit about Pope Pius XII, mostly from my father, because my father was a a, a seminarian who went to Jesuit high school here in New Orleans, um, ended up going to St. Benedict's in Covington, Louisiana, and then over to Notre Dame Seminary. And around 1955, 56, Archbishop Rummel of New Orleans at the time sent my dad over to Rome to study at the Gregorian University and, and at the North American College. While he was in Rome in 1957, Pope Pius XII died, and my dad was selected as one of the seminarians to go sit with the body of Pope Pius XII the night before the funeral over at Castel Gandolfo, before the funeral at St. Peter's the next morning, which was quite an accomplishment for um, a, you know, a, a, a second-generation Italian-American from New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, so my, my initial impression was 
about Pope Pius XII was really what I had learned from my father, which my father always thought that he was in a tough spot and that he kind of got maligned a lot um, as opposed to what the actual, you know, the historical facts were as opposed to what some people were saying about him. My personal view through my research of this novel is kind of hasn't changed from what my father's belief was, which was he was the Pope was in a tremendously difficult position. Rome was surrounded by fascist Italy who hated Jews, as well as the Germans who came into Italy, particularly once Germany switched, once Italy switched sides and then Germans invaded Italy. So it was, the Vatican was an island in and of itself. He was also the Pope, not only to the potential winners of the World War II, he's also going to be the Pope to the losers of World War II. So he had to take a neutral position publicly. Behind the scenes, he did a lot more than what he is giving credit for. Chip, do you outline character traits before starting to write a story, or do you just let them develop on their own as the story progresses? I don't think I outline character traits. I think the character will develop um, when they first, when the, when that, when the character first appears in the story, um, then as the writing develops and the story goes along, I may come back and have to go back and retweak, retweak something because maybe that character changes in my mind as the story progresses. So I, I think I don't, I, I definitely don't have his, um, the entire life story of the character from the moment he hits the page, but I think over time it develops as, through the writing process. So you get to know your characters during the process of writing the novel. Absolutely. And, and I will say, for, for the protagonist, I, I really envy the authors who can write characters who they don't like, because I, I, am, I'm, I am absolutely certain I can only write about characters who I fall in love with and who I love in return. Yeah, but yet you had to do that in this novel to write about the German officers absolutely, and, yes, absolutely. and Hitler himself. Correct. Absolutely. How did you do it? Um, I think because I fell in love with the Jewish musicians in the novel, and also with the characters in the, from a song for Bella, I mean, from the from the Bella Fortuna Village, that the more I wrote about what they were going through, the more easy it was to to, to write about <laughs> the hate towards the people who are causing them so much yeah. turmoil. So it was. It was the other side of the coin, if you will. I, I think that's the best way to put it, Jonathan. You nailed it. Yes. Okay. Um, what's your connection with music, Chip? I mean, why saving the musicians rather than saving the, the carpenters or the plumbers or the rabbis, for that matter? <sighs> you know, I, um, I, I'm not a musician. Let me say, say that first off. But I grew up in a house surrounded by music. None of my, my, my father's not a musician. My mother's not a musician. My sister, older sister ha, does have a wonderful singing voice. Um, but you know, I, I I'm going to tell you, I mean, you, you may laugh when I say this. I grew up in a house where Mario Lanza was on the radio and on our phonograph every day. You know, my mother would listen to Broadway plays. My father listened to opera and Errol Flynn movie music. That's what he would do. So I grew up in a time, in a place where music played a part in our lives on almost a daily basis. So you were steeped in musical traditions. I was. Absolutely. Okay. What do, what do you find the hardest to write? 
the hardest to write in regards to my novel. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's strange because I'm, I'm working on the third part of the series. So I'm going to give an answer based on, it's hard to give an answer based on, if I give it to you on the first three novels I've written, the, the opening was always the hardest for me because it was kind of like, you kind of want to tell the whole story, kind of develop everything right there to kind of get people to know everything about them. But you start to realize that's not the best way to tell a story, right? Um, right. I think the problem I'm having for the for the the third book of the series, which is going to be the final part of it, um, is the ending because the I, I know the series is coming to an end and is trying to find the right mix and the right. You know how do how do we end it in a note that's going to make this a very memorable book? And that's so I'd say it's different for this book because it's the ending. The other ones were always the beginning because you kind of always wanted to expand, and it became too much of a of a story dump, as you say. And then usually the way I would write it, I'd dump it, and then I'd just kind of take it apart and and spread that out across the entire novel. Yeah, and you've become friends with your characters, haven't you, Chip? So it's going to be hard to give them up. Absolutely. At the Absolutely. end of the series. Absolutely. What do you think about the concept of writer's block? Um, it's real. Um, it's I know a lot of people have different ways to try to get through it. Um, what I tend to do when I have writer's block is I just go back and work on the parts that I have done. Of if it's writer's block, meaning that it's it's not so much with a developing a story, but where if I have writer's block and that I finished a few chapters and now I'm just stuck then I'll just go back and keep perfecting those chapters until I can pick it up and start going, okay, there it is. I now can start writing again. Do you have a writing setup and any kind of writing ritual that you use, like a strategy? I, um, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer by profession, so therefore I, I work during the day, right? So I, I mostly write my novels in the morning. Um, I'll leave my house and go to a coffee shop and sit down for an hour and just write a chapter. That's my that's my goal to write a chapter. And if I'm not going to write that day, then it's to go perfect a chapter <laughs> that I'd worked on before. My my ritual is I will have a I have my earbuds in my ear and listening to use usually either opera or soundtrack music just to kind of inspire me for the day. So um, so music really is your your wellspring of in of inspiration for your work. It is, is that correct? Jeff? There's there's no doubt. There's no doubt. Okay. Uh, what book do you have on your nightstand, Chip? What What is your book? You know, it, it's um, one thing I've found, and it's just something I've always done, is uh, while I'm writing a novel, I don't read anything else. Because um, I just find, unless I'm doing research, and I'll read those type of, you know, whatever I'm doing research on. But relative to just reading other fictional novels, when I'm writing a book, I don't, because I just don't want to get, the, you know, have have their thought, their ideas of what their storyline is kind of jumbled with mine. So sure. while I'm writing, actively writing a novel, nothing is on my nightstand because I just, I'd rather just um, kind of be thinking about what I'm going to, to be doing. Yeah, you want your story to be your own. Correct. Unique and not directly influenced by another author. Correct. But putting that aside, what book do you have on your nightstand, Chip, when you're not writing a novel? Um, I can tell you the one book that sits on my nightstand all the time is uh, The Lord of the Rings, just because that was my inspiration to even begin writing in the first place, not knowing I could do it, uh, not knowing that I would even know how to write a novel. Um, when I was 15 years old, I picked up 
the Lord of the Rings. I read the Fellowship of the Ring one summer um, and then read the other two novels and was immediately blown away with J.R.R. Tolkien's writing style and just his entire way that he created this world. And I'm going to go back to, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, I'll get emails from, from readers who say, hey, I'm going to Sicily. I can't find Bella Fortuna on a map. Um, which is a testament, I guess, to the fact that, that they really believe it's a, it's a true place. Mm-hmm. So I'm asked all the time, well, why didn't you really, why didn't you set this in a, in a real village in Sicily? And, and the reason has to do with number one, Tolkien set his in a fictional world because he then could create the history of that world. Um, I did the kind of the same thing with Bella Fortuna in that I wanted to have a history of the village not tied to, you know, if I set it in Monreale, let's say in Sicily, well, if you're a historian of Sicily, you're going to know the history of Monreale. The Bella Fortuna history is what I created. So therefore, I don't have to worry about anyone correcting me because it's my village. Um, So so you use the Tolkien framework for your series. I did, and trust me, in no way is anywhere close to what Tolkien did, but it's it's my tribute to the man who I believe brought me into writing. It's a wonderful tribute. What do you plan on working on next, Chip? So I'm working on, like I said, the third uh, part of the series. I'm not quite sure of the title just yet. I'm about halfway through um, trying to, to get that right niche as to how is this novel going to end so that I can end the series in a, in a very beautiful beautiful way of course music will play a role because that's what i am you know (laughs) that's what is what drives the the inspiration okay well thanks chip i think this was a a very uh, informative morning for me and i hope for your listeners as well thank you very much john i love being with you sure no problem